Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. Hey, family finance moms, happy Wednesday. For those who are new, welcome. And to all of those joining um, on the regular, welcome too. I'm Megan, also known as the family finance mom. And once a week on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m., I hop on to answer as many of your personal finance, financial markets, economic news questions as I can in about 30 minutes. Um, If you can't join live and you have a question, you're always welcome to submit it. I do post the replays here live on Instagram. Um, I also save the audio portion and upload it to my podcast, Finance Explained, so you can catch it on the go um, at your leisure and at your convenience. Uh, I do start with the questions that people submitted in the box last night, but if you are here watching live, you are always welcome to add questions in the comments um, should time permit or, you know, ask clarifying questions as we go along. So with all of that being said, I'm going to go ahead and get started um, with the questions from the box last night. The first one is about treasury bills. What are your thoughts on buying treasury bills directly from the government? So here's the thing is that tons of businesses, investors, hedge funds um, buy treasury bills from the government every day. The government is on a regular basis having auctions where they are selling. That is how the government raises and issues debt. When we talk about the national debt increasing, it's increasing because people are willing to buy it. Treasury bills and treasury bonds are always coming due. Um, The government is always having to issue new debt in order to be able to pay off the bills that are due, as well as pay off um, new bills that are coming um, in terms of, let me clarify, treasury bills are debt issued by the U.S. government with maturities, meaning how long they're outstanding from the time you give the government the money to the time they have to pay you back, outstanding for less than a year. So some of the standard maturities are like, we have one month T-bills, three month T-bills, six month T-bills. Anything with a maturity date longer than a year is referred to as a treasury bond. So anyone can buy treasury bills directly from the government, or you can also buy them traded in the aftermarket um, on bond exchanges, you know, by calling up your broker and say, hey, I want to buy a treasury bill. Here's the thing. Treasury bills have very short maturities. They sell at a discount, meaning a bond is usually issued in $1,000 increments, but a treasury bill, you're going to buy it at a discount and then at maturity. So if it's a one month treasury bill at its one month maturity date, you're going to get paid the full $1,000 and it's sold at a discount that kind of implies the Um, interest rate that you should be getting paid. That's kind of how the treasury bills work. Um, But here's the problem, right? They're constantly maturing. They only last for a month or three months or six months. And if you're buying them directly from the U.S. government, 
you have to manage that redemption process. Meaning like you're going to get cash back and you're going to have to reinvest it and buy new ones all the time. So if you don't want investing and managing all of that to be your full-time job, one of the ways, especially as a retail investor, if you want that yield, and right now the yield on you know three-month T-bills, which is sort of kind of the most, I think, frequent and commonly cited uh, treasury bill is 5.3%. So that means if you continually reinvested your three-month treasury bill and held it for a year, you would earn an implied interest rate of 5.3%. That's pretty attractive for something that has the backing of the US government and is largely considered to be kind of the lowest risk investment out there. Um, some people will start to argue whether that still remains true, but by and large, with the backing of the US government, that's about as risk-free as you can get other than shoving money under your mattress, which of course is not gonna be earning you 5% in interest. So what is an alternative? Well, there are ETFs out there that will manage all of that, will do all that continuous investing for you and allow you to earn that yield over time. Um, one of the most common is the ticker is BIL, which implies, you know, kind of short for uh, treasury bills. Um, but that's an ETF that invests in one to three month treasury bills. So it allows you to kind of capture that yield without, um, all of the process of having to constantly be getting repaid and having to reinvest. So it's not that there's anything wrong with buying your treasury bills directly from the U.S. government. People do that all the time. Um, professional investors do it all the time. But the downside is kind of having to manage that short-term maturity and always getting repaid and always needing to reinvest. So hopefully that helps and answers that question. Um, and just in terms of like definitions and vernacular, just to remind everybody, a treasury bill and a treasury bond are both debt issued by the U.S. government. That's how they issue debt. They both have $1,000 um, increments, meaning if you buy one, you're buying $1,000 worth. Now, whether you're paying $1,000 for it um, at any point in time kind of depends um, however, a treasury bill means it has a maturity of less than a year. So like a one month T-bill, a three month T-bill, a six month T-bill. If it's a treasury bond, it's going to have a maturity longer than a year. And kind of common increments for that are three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, as long as 30 years. And lately there's been kind of a push. This was something that was kind of talked about under President Trump. When interest rates were really low, there was kind of a push to say, hey, why don't we issue 100-year government bonds, um, especially when we could have locked them in at 2%. One of the things that is a source of concern right now, and it should be a source of concern, is roughly a third of the national debt is going to reset. Um, and when we say reset, meaning it's going to mature and come due, meaning they're going to have to issue new debt to pay it off and take its place. And obviously, interest rates right now are much higher than they were a year ago or two years ago. So that 30% um, of the national debt, which as of this week, I think is something like $33 trillion, um, roughly $10 trillion of that is going to get replaced with debt at a much higher interest rate which means that the national budget every year that Congress puts forward, a larger chunk of that is going to have to go to interest expense. So anyway, that's kind of how it's all connected. I diverged a little bit, but um, just some facts around that to hopefully um, build your financial literacy knowledge. 
Okay, next question. Let's see, do I need a trust? Okay, so I've had on here a couple times somebody who is truly an expert in this. Her name is Estate Planning Mom. She's an estate attorney out in the state of California. And I say that because trust and wills and all of that is very much governed on a state level, um, state by state, the laws can vary, not significantly, but they vary depending on kind of how they treat, um, you know, wills and inheritance and the probate process, which is the legal process that happens when somebody dies and assets transfer. Um, all of that is dictated at a state level. So when you are going through a process to put a will in place or put a trust in place, it's really important that you use an attorney in your state because the laws vary from state to state. As I said, I've had a state planning mom on here a couple of times. I've had her on the podcast. Um, I have a blog post based on Q&A that I've done with her and I'll link all that up when I'm done here kind of as a resource that you can reference. But here's what you need to kind of know about trusts. The necessity of a trust really varies depending on the state you are in. Some states will make you go through probate even if you have a will, um, if you don't have a trust, in which case a trust may be more of a necessity in a state like that. California is one of those states, just as an example. What does a trust do? A trust is essentially setting up a legal entity that holds or inherits your assets, and your assets could be everything from your home to being the pay, who receives the payout, who or what entity receives the payout on, say, like your life insurance policy in the event something were to happen to you. And what a trust allows you to do is, one, it gives you privacy, because in any legal documentation or proceedings, it's going to have the name of a trust instead of your personal name that could identify your assets and um, what's happening in your legal proceedings to the whole world. It also gives you control even when you aren't around anymore because you get to dictate the terms of the trust and how the trust works. So let me give you an example. Say that you own, and this isn't wouldn't be that uncommon given where home prices are today, Say you own a home that is now valued at $500,000 and you also have a life insurance policy that in the event of your death pays out a million dollars, which given where people's incomes are today, if you have a young family, that is also not out of the realm of most people's possibility. Now, if something were to happen to both you and your spouse tomorrow, God forbid you get hit by an 18-wheeler and you are, you know, both deceased in an accident. And the way your will were set up is that your children inherit everything um, in the event that something happens to both you and your spouse. Your child now overnight has one and a half million dollars of assets in their name that they're supposed to control. When if they are still a minor, they may not even be able to own their own brokerage account or hold stocks on their own. So how are they going to oversee and manage that? That is kind of a scenario where a trust would be hugely beneficial. Um, the other thing to know is that typically when you set up a trust, it is part of a broader kind of um, end of life documentation process. Typically, if you go meet with an estate attorney, you're going to set up a will, 
You're going to, if need be, set up these trusts. You're going to set up things like power of attorney. That's like, if the, in the event that you were incapacitated, who would you allow to make financial decisions for you? You might also set up a HIPAA directive. In the event that you were incapacitated, who would you choose to make medical decisions for you? If you have children, it's also when you would set up kind of those guardianship documents. Um, who do you want to have guardianship of your children in the event that you are no longer here? You would then name in your trust who the people are that would oversee and manage and be the fiduciaries of that trust, as well as who would be the beneficiaries. Um, so for example, you might set it up where someone you trust financially is going to manage and oversee the trust. That might be different than, say, who has guardianship of your children, but that fiduciary that you appoint for the trust is going to make sure that the assets are managed so that they are there for your children when they need them. Just as, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm kind of um, oversimplifying this a little bit, but that's kind of the way to think about it in terms of how it would work. I would highly recommend if this is an area that you are interested in understanding more, following a state planning mom, even though she's based in the state of California, she now also has a network of attorneys that she works with all around the country across all different states. So even if you're in a different state, she may be able to refer you to an estate planning attorney in a different state. Um, but anyway, when I'm done here, like I said, I will link up my podcast episode with her because I think it's super helpful. Um, as well as the blog post that kind of answers some of the basic ins and outs of this process. Um, but generally speaking, I think especially a family, especially anyone that owns a home and or has a life insurance policy and or has financial dependents, far more people actually do need um, trust kind of set up and put in place than many people might believe. It's not just for the multimillionaires and billionaires of the world. Um, so anyway, you can take a read through that and understand it a little bit more. But like I said, I'd recommend reaching out to an attorney in your local and or state area because these are laws that are managed and kind of nuanced from state to state. But hopefully that, that helps. Okay, next question. What are Euro dollar futures? Or it said Euro dollar futures with a bunch of question marks. So I'm not sure if you're asking what they are or what's going on with them. Here's what to know. So let's start with kind of defining the terms. What is a future? A future is a financial contract to buy or sell an asset. So you can have futures on currencies. You can have futures on stock indexes. You can have futures um, on commodities, for example. Um, so it's a contract to buy or sell an, an underlying asset. In this case, we're talking about euro dollars, and I'll talk about what that is in a second, at a set price. So you're agreeing up front, today I'm going to buy, in today um, in three months, I'm going to buy this asset at this set price. Um, and so, you know, the key things are what is the asset? what is the price you're agreeing to and what is the date in the future that you're agreeing to buy or sell this asset. Now, Euro dollars are the foreign exchange rate for euros, which is the currency in Europe, relative to dollars. Now, FX rates, which is the short-term vernacular for foreign exchange, are a function of a bunch of different things, but primarily relative interest rates. So, what are um, 
what are euro bonds being issued for in terms of interest rates versus treasury bonds. That's one of the things that factors in. Another thing that factors in is economic outlook. How is the health of the US economy relative to the Eurozone? A third thing that factors in is what is the balance of trade between the two countries? Because that's going to impact the demand for um, you know, the FX trading back and forth between euros and dollars. And so those things all kind of get factored in. And I will, with the caveat that I am not an FX expert, but those are some of the things that factor into why exchange rates are what they are and how they fluctuate. Um, so a euro dollar future is essentially saying, usually they're going to be used because you're making a bet on the direction that you think FX rates are moving. Um, and that allows you to kind of lock it in now for a given point in time in the future. Um, right now, FX rates between the euro and the dollar are I think they're relatively flat year to date. Um, I haven't really followed them super closely, but I don't know if that answers your question or you were looking for something more than that. Uh, okay, next question. What is your best advice for someone without any retirement savings and 60 years old? Here's what I will tell you. It's never too late to start, um, but obviously at 60 years old, you are closer to retirement than most. So here are some immediate action steps that I would recommend taking in order to at least kind of frame your situation, right? Like what is, what is the reality of what income you may have access to in retirement? And then what can you do to potentially improve that? So the first thing is I would check out ssa.gov. That is the Social Security Administration's website. And they now have something where every single American has something known as their My SSA account. So SSA, Social Security Administration.gov, you can go in and it will show you all of your Social Security contributions to date. And it will also allow you to kind of plug in different variables and it will estimate for you what your potential Social Security benefits are at various retirement ages. So if you start taking um, payouts from Social Security at 65, um, given the number of quarters, and this is kind of how they calculate it, like how long in your lifetime have you and or if you're a surviving spouse, your, you know, your spouse, how many years have they been paying into Social Security? Have the two of you been paying into Social Security at what level? And now what does that entitle you to as a benefit in retirement? Um, so that's item number one. It'll, like I said, it'll estimate your monthly benefit, meaning how much your social security check will be per month at different ages. So if you start taking, you know, payments at 65, at 67, at 72, um, it'll show you kind of what that is. Obviously, the longer you wait, the larger your monthly check will be. So that's the first thing I would do, because that will give you a sense of, okay, what is my potential minimum fixed income benefit going to be in retirement if I haven't saved anything outside of that. So that's where you can start from. The second thing I would say is, do you have any pension benefits? So did you work in a job where maybe you weren't contributing to a 401k, but do you have pension benefits that are built into the benefits of that job? Jobs like that are often like public servants, 
Um, if you were a public school teacher, that would have pension benefits associated with it. Um, various union jobs, both in the public and the private sector, may have pension benefits associated with it. Um, you know, and check that out both for you and or your spouse or former spouse or deceased spouse. All of that may be benefits that you are entitled to. The third thing I would say is review your assets. Um, just because you don't have money sitting in an IRA or in a 401k doesn't mean you don't have assets that you can't tap into for retirement. The first and largest being, do you own your own home? If you own your own home and you own it outright, as you get older, this is something that a lot of people do, is for many people, their home is their largest asset, but it's illiquid. But you can tap into it for retirement purposes um, through something known as a reverse mortgage. Now, I wouldn't recommend a reverse mortgage you know, if you are 50 years old, because you're probably going to outlive the benefit, like the, you're going to live longer than that will last you. But as you get older, a reverse mortgage essentially pays you every month um, and it accumulates a mortgage balance. And when you pass away and or sell your home, you would use the proceeds to then pay off that mortgage. It's kind of like a home equity loan, only it gets paid out in installments. So that is an option that you could consider to augment that retirement income that you may be getting from Social Security. And then the fourth action item that I would take right now, review your expenses. Um, are there things and actions that you can take right now to reduce your monthly expenses so that you can aggressively start saving for retirement? Because anything is better than nothing. Um, and because you're already 60, many retirement accounts give you something known as catch-up benefits. So while, for example, an individual can only contribute, and I'm not going to remember the limit for this year right off the top of my head, I want to say it's $6,500 a year. Um, while most individuals can only contribute $6,500 a year to your retirement account, because you are now over 55, you can make catch-up contributions. So you can contribute up to, I believe it's an additional $5,000 or $5,500. Um, so if you weren't going to retire for, say, you know, until you're 65 or 70, you still have five to 10 years of being able to put away some money for retirement. And anything you have saved that can ultimately generate passive income is going to add to that monthly um, retirement income that you have uh, when you stop working. And then the last thing to just be aware of is that health benefits, um, Medicare, which is uh, federally funded medical benefits for retirees, that starts at 65. Um, so that is why a lot of people uh, retire around that age, because that's when kind of all of those uh, federally backed entitlements kick in. Um, but those are kind of the four action items that I would undertake today to start to frame like, okay, what does this actually look like? And then what actions might I be able to take to um, improve that situation uh, going forward? So I hope that that helps and gives some insights. Okay, next question. Calls and puts, question mark. Okay, so this is kind of another lingo question. Calls and puts are stock options. So just like I talked about futures before being a financial contract, 
stocks and or stock options are another form of financial contract between two parties. It is an option. So a future that we talked about earlier is a contract that mandates delivery, meaning once you have a futures contract, you've agreed to do this no matter what. In a option contract, you pay a premium to have the option, meaning that if it's not going to benefit you, you don't have to use that option, but you did pay some small premium up front to have the option. So what does an option do? It gives you the option to buy or sell a specific stock at a set price up to some point in the future. So the key components of an option contract are the strike price, which is the price that you agree to execute at, to buy or sell at, um, and the term. So usually it's like three-month option or a six-month option or a one-month option. Um, so you might say, okay, I'm and I'm making this up. ABC company is the stock. I'm going to give you the option to buy it at $100 a share at any point over the next three months. That's how an option works. Well, if suddenly the stock goes to $120 a share, that option is in the money and I'm going to take it because I can buy it from you based on our option agreement at $100 and I can turn around and sell it for $120. Um, let's see what else. Just a call. And the reason, I don't know why they're called calls and puts, but the way that I remember which option is which. So a call is an option to buy a stock and a put is an option to sell a stock. And the way that I remember the two is that C for call is closer to B for buy and P for put is closer to S for sell. So a call is an option to buy a stock and a P is an option to sell a stock. And people use options um, for, originally they were created as kind of hedging strategies, right? Like if I own a whole bunch of say Exxon stock, for example, and I'm worried about what the price of oil is going to do and how that might impact my, my um, portfolio, I could, for a very small portion of the value of an Exxon stock, buy a call option or a, a put option that could protect my downside. So if suddenly the stock falls off a cliff, well, I have this put option that allows me to now sell it closer to where the price was, um, say, six months earlier or something like that. That's typically what they're for. Some people now are option traders. Here's what you need to also understand about options. If you are using options in what they call naked options, naked options means you don't actually own the underlying stocks that you're taking options out on. Um, that has a lot of risk built into it inherently because you don't have the underlying stock moving up and down in conjunction with that option price. So I can sell you options and I get that premium, that small piece of um, the pie, but I could have to then deliver stock that I don't own and that stock can move wildly from wherever I agreed to say buy or sell it, for example. And that can result in you know, massive losses when you don't actually own the underlying stock that you're making option contracts on. There's a lot of inherent kind of leverage built into it, built into option trading. So it's one of those things where like, if you don't understand what you're doing, you don't own the underlying stock associated with the option contracts, be very careful. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the 101 version of stocks and the options and futures that we've talked about today. 
just for kind of to give you some perspective as a finance major, we spent a whole semester, um, a whole semester course just on stocks and options and derivatives and futures. Um, and obviously there are people that do that like as their full-time job too. So it's something that is kind of a more, I would say advanced financial topic um, and is not something I would recommend kind of new, like new investors and people new to finance, like dabbling in, because it is something that can get you in trouble very, very quickly if you don't understand the math and how it works. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my two cents and word of caution associated with it. All right, next question. Would a recession come before the next presidential election? Wouldn't we all like to know? I mean, everybody wishes they had a crystal ball that could say exactly when and if a recession is going to hit. All the financial data that I've been looking at for the better part of the last year, for many reasons, says that our current economic environment is unsustainable and something's got to give. As student, one of my kind of biggest concerns heading into Q4 is that as student loan payments turn back on, that's going to impact a significant number of households. That's going to have a significant impact on consumer spending, which is the main driver of the U.S. economy. And in my personal opinion, that makes not having some type of economic slowdown um, very difficult to avoid. I would anticipate that if we are not, and I know I, I sound like a broken record and I've been saying this for a while, that if we are not already in an economic recession, we are likely to enter into one in Q4 or Q1 simply because of that, as well as a whole host of other things. Um, historically, recessions often are triggered or kick off like in Q4 or Q1. And the reason being for that is that consumer spending has seasonality associated with it. And the holiday season often is the peak of consumer spending. And that's where we start to see it fray first um, as we go through the holiday season. And so you'll see if you look back historically that many recessions sort of are triggered around that time frame. So we'll see how we go through Q4 and into Q1 um, and what transpires as student loans turn back on, how this holiday season plays out. Um, but I'll be paying attention to things like um, consumer spending, advanced retail sales numbers, um, think data points like that to give us some sense of the direction that things are heading. Just as an additional data point on that, no relative to this question about asking if it'll be before the presidential election, no president has won re-election in a period where there is currently a recession or has been a recession in the last two years of their presidency in over 120 years. The last president to win re-election in that scenario was in 1900. Um, so the economy matters to people. Um, people feeling secure about their economic situation weighs far more on the outcome of presidential elections than I think many people give it credit for. Um, so it would be really bad news for the Biden administration if a recession starts in the next, call it nine months um, or six months. And so you can imagine that they're going to try to do everything that they legally can 
Um, Congress is going to try to do what it can, although I think it's important to note that Republicans have the majority in the House, which has is the primary control over the purse strings. So things, what could a president or a presidential administration do to evade a recession before the next election? They could pass spending bills that put money in people's pockets. They could try to pass bills that stall or put off student loan repayments or try to pursue student loan forgiveness, which you've seen them trying to do around the edges. Um, but obviously legally, like the Supreme Court has kind of put the kibosh on that. Um, so anyway, doesn't necessarily answer your question because it's impossible for anybody to answer that with a significant degree of certainty, but those are some of the data points around it. Uh, okay, next question. We have the cash to pay off student loans when payments start again with plenty left in our reserve fund. Should we pay it off or make the payments in hope of eventually some being forgiven? So here's what I will say. Anytime I get asked questions like this, I characterize them as this or that. And anytime you are trying to make a financial decision between two options, it comes down to opportunity cost. Opportunity cost isn't how much is this costing me? It's if I don't do this, what am I giving up? Um, it's an economic concept. So the thing you want to think about is, okay, how much could realistically actually be forgiven? When we've had these discussions around forgiveness, what's been put forward is, you know, $10,000 typically per borrower. Um, in, the case, in the case of, you know, if you were... Um, in certain scenarios, I think it's been proposed to be up to like 15 or 20,000 for people that may have had, you know, there were certain grants and things like that that are accessible to people in poverty situations. There are proposals to have higher levels of forgiveness for that. So that's what kind of order of magnitude you're talking about, unless you qualify for some type of public service um, loan forgiveness. And you would know if that were the case where you might be eligible to have your entire balance forgiven entirely. And not to be, um, I don't know what the right word would be, not to be like too dismissive, but my guess is that if you've amassed enough in savings to be able to pay off your student loans, you're probably not in a public service position because frankly, they don't pay all that much, which is why one of the benefits is student loan forgiveness. Um, so realistically speaking, you're looking at, okay, maybe someday I'll be eligible for $10,000 of forgiveness. The second question is, okay, so when will it happen? Obviously, this is something that's being been kicked around and being discussed for the better part of the last three years. The um, Supreme Court has said they can't do it in the way that it's been proposed. They're trying to find other ways to do it, but it's going to be a lengthy legal process. And so nobody really knows when or if it might happen and to what order of magnitude and who might be eligible. So that's kind of like a question mark and there's uncertainty around it. The third thing you wanna look at is what is the loan rate? What interest rate are you paying on those loans? So by leaving them outstanding, how much are you incurring an in interest expense every month once that interest expense turns back on, which it did as of September? Um, so you know if you're talking like interest rates of like six and 7%, and you're sitting on savings that is earning you, you know, right now, maybe it's earning you something like 4%. Well, having those loans outstanding is costing you an extra 3% every month. So getting rid of it is going to 
be of net benefit to you, if that makes sense. Um, so that's kind of how to think through it. My guess is that leaving an extra $10,000 that may or may not be forgiven someday that may be at interest rates of probably somewhere in the six to 8% range, depending on when you took out those loans, you're probably better off just paying it off if you have the money to do it. Um, you're going to have net interest savings relative to what you were earning on the savings versus what that loan is costing you. And that generally would be kind of how I would think about setting up and understanding making that decision. So hopefully that helps. Um, okay, I'm way over the 30 minute mark. I'm just scrolling back to make sure I didn't miss any questions from the audience. Um, that was all a lot of really great questions today. As I mentioned, the replay will be posted here on Instagram as well as um, on my podcast, Finance Explained. A couple things to be aware of and that are in the works here. One, last week we announced the Q4 book club pick. Um, it is Titan, which is an auto, not an autobiography, a biography by famed biographer Ron Chernow about John D. Rockefeller. I already started it. It is super interesting. Um, I think so, like I'm in the beginning, so it's like his early life and his um, family background and things like that. And I think one of the things I'm most astonished by is like, how dysfunctional families were even back in like the 18, early 1800s. Um, it's interesting. So not to like spoiler alert, cause this is early in the book, but basically his father was an absentee father who was a snake oil salesman essentially. So he would leave his family for like months at a time his mom never knew when or if he was coming back and she and the kids had to like make it work when he was gone. Um, so anyway, that was it's interesting to see somebody who ended up being what is still considered the wealthiest man in the United States, even like on um, basically relative to GDP at the time, he had more wealth than any other individual at any other point in American history where they came from. Um, so anyway, it's a very, very intriguing and interesting read so far. It is long. So if you want to read with us, I would encourage starting sooner rather than later, but it's a page turner. Like it's not like dry and uninteresting. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing, the Fed has its regularly, regularly scheduled FOMC meeting yesterday and today. They will hold a press conference today at 2 p.m. to announce their monetary policy decisions. I would say the market in general believes that they're going to pause on interest rate hikes, but people will be watching very closely the language around the release to see anything that they imply about what happens going forward. The other thing to know is that at this meeting, they don't do this at every meeting, um, but this is one of the meetings where they also put forward projections from the board of governors. So all the board of governors say, okay, what do we think inflation is going to be at the end of this year, at the end of next year? What do we think unemployment is going to be? What do we think GDP is going to be? So we will see these people that are making these monetary policy decisions. What is their outlook for the economy, for unemployment, for inflation? Um, when and if do they think is there going to be a recession? Because those perspectives is what is coloring and informing their view on interest rates. So they'll release that information today as well. 
So I'll put together a summary of kind of all of that and be sure to share it with all you guys. It'll probably be out tomorrow. But at two o'clock um, is the press conference when that comes out. The other thing that I've been working on that I will be getting out today is a housing update. What's going on in the housing market? How are high mortgage rates impacting the housing market? Is there going to be another 2008 situation, which asterisk, I don't foresee that happening unless we have some super severe recession with prolonged unemployment. And the spoiler alert on that is really that too many people in the current environment have locked in mortgage rates at historic all-time levels. So nobody's going to sell a house if they don't have to. Um, having a 3% mortgage right now is a huge asset. And oh, by the way, roughly 40% of homeowners own their homes outright with no mortgage at all. Um, so if they anybody who would sell today, even to realize these higher prices, they're going to be at a disadvantage because now you have to then buy something that is at a higher price and you have to buy it at a 7% mortgage rate. So it's a huge asset to be in a home that either you own outright or you have at a mortgage rate that is substantially lower and is at you know the lowest they've ever been over the entire history of mortgage rates. Um, and so what you have happening is very, very tight supply. Nobody's listing their house. Listings are at like all-time lows. We're also seeing home builders. We saw starts that were announced yesterday have now dropped off significantly again as well. So fundamentally, there's a housing shortage that is supporting rising home prices, although the increase is slow just because there's no inventory and very few sales and nobody wants to buy a house at a 7% mortgage rate if they don't have to. Um, but I'll, show, I'll sort of show you all the data points on that and kind of how it all adds up. Um, but that's kind of what's going on in the housing market right now. Um, that'll come out today as well. So those are the kind of the big things. Um, really, people are focused on today's FOMC press conference that, again, starts at 2 o'clock. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of that in stories tomorrow, what comes out of that. So have a great rest of the week. I will be back here next Wednesday at 9 a.m. to take your questions again. Um, and I look forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.